was living in New York City at the time. Early one Monday morning, like around 3 a.m. on a Monday morning, somebody shot my apartment window. We never found out who or why or what it was about, but that week was the week I wrote Dread. That's Epidai Ravishal, award-winning designer of Dread, Vast and Starlet, and Swords Without Master. In this pair of special episodes, we're taking a detailed look at the development of a single designer. Epidai has been designing role-playing games since the late 90s, covering the entire duration of the modern indie movement. A running theme throughout his work is innovation. Not only has he won awards for innovation, including in any, he could be considered the parent of the business card RPG, or nano game as it's otherwise known. He's also looked to innovate in the method by which games are designed and sold, and is continuing to innovate even now with a new style of role-playing and a new method by which games can be published with his sword and sorcery easing Worlds Without Master. Epidai's most famous game was one of his first published, the horror RPG where you die when a Jenga tower falls, called Dread. Dread was designed in the late 90s by Epidai and Nathaniel Barmore. Here Epidai talks with Joshua Jones on the Table Play podcast about the origins of the game. It was around 1999. I was going to college at the time and I moved in with Nat Barmore, or what else, he's the co-designer on the the game. Mm -hmm. So he's a gamer, I'm a gamer. I had been a little bit out of gaming for the past four or five years at that time, uh, and I was getting back into it. And just having that close proximity where we could just wake up and you go out to get your bowl of cereal and there's somebody who's just like, I had this idea, blah, 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 and just bouncing it off of each other. What often happens, especially at the age that we were at, is that you start arguing about, you know, everything. And those arguments can be very fruitful, especially if you're held to prove your case. In those early days, there are quite a few game ideas that we had that we had thrown, I guess, uh, against the wall to see what they did. And a lot of them worked, and a lot of them were nice. And and early on, Dread was part of, like, like, it wasn't even horror in the very beginning. The very, very beginning. It took all of 20 minutes before it became a horror game. I think, (laughs) like... Originally, it was, oh, you can use Jenga instead of dice, and I don't even know, maybe like a film noir game came to mind or something, but like immediately it was like, oh, no, this is this is good for horror. We're going to do horror. And the early versions of Dread, like real early, there were some dead ends that we went down. There were dice in the early game. You would roll them, and they would determine things like how dangerous the situation was. It was basically a GM tool. But what happened was, is we sat down to play the very first game, and we had these rules, and we didn't even touch them, and knew, like, at the end of that game, there's no reason to have these. This is ridiculous. Let's throw that out. We had a list of probably a hundred-some questions for the questionnaires. Again, we sat down, and we're like, oh yeah, just like answer whatever you want for your character. And that eventually became these custom questionnaires that we made for the individual characters. And I like, I keep dialing back on that. Like in the book that you have, like one that we published in 2005, we suggest something like 13 questions. The game can still run with a smaller amount. But anyways, we, we played this game. It worked. We went to conventions, lots of little conventions, and then some of the bigger ones like Gen Con and Origins, and we demo it there. And we generate kind of a following. There was a lot of people who were really interested in the game and the other games that we were working on at the time and got kind of a reputation that way. And we knew we were going to try, I think early on I tried to sell it to a game publisher and they rejected it, which is fun. I like, I, <laughs> I like to be like, aha, you rejected this one. Uh, eventually Nat convinced me to publish it because at the time publishing, self-publishing was still a dangerous endeavor, right? It's Mm -hmm. a little perilous. Self-publishing was synonymous with vanity publishing, which meant you shelled out a lot of your money and prayed that, to whatever gods you prayed to, (laughs) that 
sell. I was not confident that it was a thing that we could do. And the me of today would go back in time and just start slapping the me of yesterday and be like, <laughs> this is the easiest thing. It's the easy. But the me of today doesn't remember how hard it was back then. Anyways, <laughs> the, uh, we published it. It took us about five years, five or six years, actually about that long for me to write it to. I was a little slow. Uh, there's a whole story about, I wrote most of it in a week. Anyways, we put it out and the year after it came out, it won the Emmy, the a golden Emmy for innovation uh, at Gen Con. So that was super exciting. That actually put Dread on the map. Dread's greatest innovation, the Jenga Tower, also proved to be its most controversial aspect because avoiding death relied upon the player's own dexterity rather than a stat on a character sheet. Nevertheless, the tower was pivotal not only mechanically, but also for the emotional structure and atmosphere it provided. Here's Epidiah talking with Josh Jordan and P.K. Sullivan on the Tell Me Another podcast. The tower there sitting at the table and doing all the things that Jenga does, I can't take any credit for that. That tower sitting there, like as it gets more and more rickety, it conveys information to the audience and everyone can see it and interpret that and that stands as the movie soundtrack. And again with Joshua Jones on table play. It's this emotional release. Like mm-hmm. the game is based on that sort of tension, the growing tension cycle, and then you release it and then it comes back. And so you have that release. It falls, everyone screams, they're like, oh. And then they calm down a little bit uh, and then they start building up and people get a little chatty. And then usually yeah. somebody's like, as they're pulling the second or third block from it and the tower starts to wobble, everyone goes quiet again. <laughs> We're not safe yet. While the tower was the most visual, emotionally engaging aspect of Dread, there was another, more subtle aspect as well. Again with Josh Jordan and P.K. Sullivan on Tell Me Another. You make your character filling out these questionnaires, and half the purpose of those questions are just to make you fall in love with your character. They're just there to make you feel fear of losing this character. And then I spend the rest of the game threatening to take that character away from you. In Dread, the designers had created a game that was both incredibly simple and effective, The first distributed version of Dread back in 2001 was only an eight-page pamphlet. It was this that they used to run Dread at conventions and gave away to their players so they could take the game to others. When it came time to publish Dread professionally back in 2005, this simplicity proved a problem. Professionally published, even indie published role-playing games back then just weren't that short. Epidiah on table play. When we put Dread out, in order to be a game, you had to have heft. To really compete with these these games, like Call of Cthulhu or Chill, you're like, I'm in the mood for a horror game, and you look on that shelf. I felt at that time we needed something of some substance. So we, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word padded, but we definitely filled the <laughs> book with as much material as we could. I think, I think a lot of it is very helpful. Expanding Dread to the size of other indie games of the time made it worthwhile to print and for role players to buy. As Epidiah himself has said, the book is big, but the game is small. Epidiah on Tell Me Another. The actual rules for Dread, if you write them out, we have them on the website on the front and back of two eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. The success of Dread, and especially the Annie in 2006, occupied much of the years that followed its release. It would be several years before Epidiah released his next game, Time and Temp. Epidiah on Tell Me Another. 
for the listeners who don't know, Time and Temp is a role-playing game in which you play your temp workers who've been hired to travel back in time to make sure history happened the way it happened. Dread and Time and Temp are cut from a very similar cloth. They both have threats of very drastic outcomes. Ironically, Time and Temp has a much worse outcome than Dread. Dread, if that tower falls, you die. Whatever. You're, you're gone, but everyone else is still around, and they have to deal with whatever horrifying situation you've left behind. If the end game occurs in time and temp, you destroy all of reality before reality even happened. So you, uh, <laughs> it's a, the stakes are slightly higher. They're just a little bit higher. It's great to take that and ramp it up for the time and temp and say, no, if this happens, we stop playing and we never play again. You know, this is it. This is the game. It's over. And then making that as petty as possible, like those temps and the office politics they deal with and just everything about them, the highest stakes with the lowest gravitas for, for those mm-hmm. stakes. Epidaya talking with us. It was my follow-up to Dread and... It was sort of trying to do to time travel stories what Dread did to horror using Sudoku instead of Jenga. And uh, not nearly as seductive as Dread was. Uh, It it has a steady following, which is nice. But I remember publishing that game, and I just had this moment where I was like, this is the last game of this type that I'll ever make. Uh, Knowing, Seeing how games were shifting and how my own interests in games were shifting At that time, economics and player expectations had meant Dread and Time and Temp were small games that were slaves to a larger product. But those fundamentals were about to change. Epidai talking with us. Originally, Epimus was about sort of encouraging people to give PDFs of games as gifts. Epimus predates the iPad, so it's before we really kind of used e-readers of any sort. And so the the idea of buying a PDF instead of buying the actual book was new, a little bit alien to people. You had to be sort of the, uh, what are the early adopters to do this, to sit at an actual computer at a desk and read it. From a publisher's side, a PDF is an amazing tool to just bypass a whole lot of costs and delays and problems uh, and to reach a far larger international audience. While Epidai was reconceptualizing how we buy and share PDFs, he was also developing a different method of designing games, Playstorming. Here, Epidai talks with Rob Ball on the Independent Insurgency podcast about the origins of Playstorming. Uh, it came out of the, the thing that would happen uh, with me and my friend Jim Sullivan. Um, we would go out to eat and, and start talking about game ideas or whatever, and at some point, yeah, we would just clear the table, pull out some paper and some dice and we just start working with the mechanic and making up the game as we go along and uh, that was tremendous fun for me mm-hmm. and I was like hey let's let's get together let's do it let's see if we can create anything with it let's see if we can do it on a regular basis so we did and the first time we did it we were more play testing than play storming like mm-hmm. I came with a if I remember correctly I, I think it was, this was time, time and temp, time and temp. yeah mm-hmm. I came with a pretty solid idea and we played through it and made some changes but there was like the second or third time or whatever we did we we just basically had just like the tiniest kernel of an idea epidar play stormed with the imagination sweatshop and helped create two games in a jiffy 
The first was Trial and Terror Supernatural Victims Unit, a game like Law and Order but with classic movie monsters, and then a game that would go on to heavily influence his future major work, a game called Monkey Dome. Epidire on Tell Me Another. There's a definite break in my work after Time and Temp. I think during the summer when I was putting Time and Temp together, I was with a bunch of friends of mine. We did our uh, game in a jiffy where we tried to write a game in a week. And that summer we made Monkey Dome. The impetus for that game was a friend of ours had noted watching Beyond Thunderdome that this movie couldn't decide if it was a grim, gritty, post-apocalyptic uh, story or if it was a zany, almost Brendan Fraser kind of film. <laughs> Anytime somebody picked up a shovel, you, you didn't know if they were going to horrifically decapitate somebody with it or hit them with the flat of it and would go boing, and then they would fall unconscious with their eyes crossed or something like that. Monkey Dome was a fully play-stormed game, conceived, created, and then published by multiple designers working together. Again with Rob Boll on The Independent Insurgency. We made this list of like over 20 game ideas, just start writing them on a dry erase board, and then all of us, we would go to one of them, we'd randomly roll them, like we'd roll one of them up, and we'd say, okay, who wants to play Urkel, the game, right? And, and if anybody... If anybody objected to it, it got crossed off. Like, okay. it didn't matter why or what. And usually it's as much as just saying, because we were doing it, trying to get the game done in a week. So we'd be like, well, we couldn't write Urkel the game in a week. Right. That's, that's an opus. So, you know, we, we narrowed it down. And we got it down to a field of like four or five, maybe six games. And then we randomly rolled to see which one we were going to do. And I think it, the, the whole purpose to this is that that whole thing, like, what should I have for dinner? Let me roll. And then, <laughs> oh, I realize I don't want that now that I'm doomed to it, <laughs> right, so yeah. we'll do something else. So I think we even, like, rolled something and we were like, hmm, and then just went with uh, Monkey Dome. The struggle between the two tones of the movie were baked into the mechanics of Monkey Dome and inspired Epidire to remember an old love. Epidire on Tell Me Another. So Monkey Dome is a game where you roll two dice. One of them is your grim die and one is your zany die. And whichever one's the higher one, that's what you what you do. That's your narration, the tone of your narration. So uh, you pick up that shovel and you roll those dice and you're going to find out if something grisly happens or if something zany happens. And that one sunk into my head because at that time I had been reading uh, rereading from my youth the Fofford and Grey Mouser series, which is Fritz Leiber's uh, Sword and Sorcery. I picked it up because I wondered if it still held up. Like I, I just remembered enjoying it quite a bit as a teenager. There's a lot of things I enjoyed as a teenager that now I'm looking back on and go, uh, I don't know. But I really, really, I was really enjoying it. And I realized that Fofford and Grey Mouser, when one of them was jovial, the other one was glum. And when one was glum, the other one was jovial, you know, vice versa. Uh, and that gave me the first inklings for Swords Without Master and sent me down this this other road where I started experimenting in these, these other ways of uh, resolving things, I guess. While he developed Swords Without Master behind the scenes, his next published game harkened back to where he'd begun with a kid-friendly GMless version of Dread called Dread House. Epidaya on table play. So Dreadhouse was uh, a combined project with Emily Kerboss, who uh, my wife, I mentioned her before, and I, we worked together. We wanted to make a kid-friendly Dread. At the time, we had a lot of friends with younger kids that were going to conventions 
uh, like local conventions, and we wanted to create something that the, the kids can enjoy. And we, you know, Dread is pretty simple. And also, like, kids like to be scary. That's a, a, a this natural trait of theirs. That's a thing that I learned really swiftly when we first play-tested Dreadhouse with kids. They, I was afraid that I would scare them, and so I held back, and they were doing the creepiest, creepiest <laughs> stuff. What we wanted is we wanted something a little more structured, a little more board gamey, so that there wasn't, like, arguments about whose turn it was or anything like that. It was clear whose turn it would be. I had some friends who could do these really cute illustrations for it, so that was great. The idea was to have this haunted house that a bunch of teenagers, because we assumed younger children would want to play grown-up teenagers. Teenagers were going to dare each other to try and spend the night in this house. The idea is that you go through the house, you uncover, we have cards that have items throughout the house, and then spooky things. So somebody, the next person draws a card that has something spooky on it, and then you have to pull to have the courage to stay in that room. And then eventually there's a monster, because when that tower falls... We can't kill anyone because it's for children. So we have the teenager run home to mommy, which is almost as bad. And then, <laughs> uh, and then the person playing that character gets to play a monster. And this wasn't the only change Epidire made to the classic Dread mechanics in Dread House. So what it essentially does is it takes a pull, which is two actions. One, you pull the block out, and then the other one is you place it on top of the tower. And it just divides it in half. That was a way to kind of say, hey, you're good at this certain thing without saying, because you're good at it, you don't have to touch the tower, right? Because mm-hmm. the fun is touching the tower. And then, in addition to that, you can, if you have this cache and you're trying to game the system, you want to fill the cache up and then lay them down on the tower so you can kind of build in behaviors for the teenagers. It was a way to give you a little bit more commission to the character. Because before in Dread, you could sort of make the claim that you were good at it and you wouldn't have to make as many pulls and that would work and that's that's feasible, but this was a way to mitigate that. And I think partly why that showed up first in Dreadhouse was because in Dreadhouse, there's nobody making that call. There's no host saying, oh, sure, yeah, you're good at this. You don't have to pull. So we had to have some sort of mechanical way to say, here you go, you're good at this, so you're only doing half a pull and then you have to do the other half later. I later use the same mechanic for the Dread Geisha do Volku, so your characters in that have pretty repugnant uh, <laughs> things that they do with it in order to gain those blocks so that they can have them to use them later on. This wouldn't be the last time Epidai returned to Dread, but for now the popularization of tablets and PDFs and changing gaming attitudes allowed him to release games with short rule sets far more easily. He first wrote Space Knights, a two-page RPG of interplanetary adventure, and then he experimented even further, driven by an experience he'd had years before. Epidai talking with us. There's this direct lineage from Dread to Vast and Starlet that runs through this horror convention in New Jersey that I went to with Vincent Baker and uh, Brett Gillen, who did Final Girl. So we went to this horror convention, the three of us, to sell our, our horror games to non-gamers. People that would likely enjoy a horror game because they enjoy horror, but we don't know if they'd enjoy a role-playing game. We sit down in this convention. We get plenty of foot traffic. Lots of people coming up to the booth. One of the tricks to selling Dread at any convention is just to put Jenga up. People at a convention cannot walk by a tower of Jenga without noodling with it. Um, And that was great because we could get our foot in the door there and start talking to them about the games we had. And... 
while they were playing with Jenga, I would run them through this tiny little short scenario. I mean, you were saying that dread rules could probably fit on a business card, and this was sort of the business card version of that, where I would say, you're, you know, it's a zombie apocalypse because everyone nowadays has like kind of a has their fantasy about how they'd survive a zombie apocalypse, and I would say that you your car is broken down uh, aside. Um, a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. The fields are overgrown with corn. You're going to go inside the house to try and find out if there's blah, blah, blah. And I set up this situation where they have to run for the house and grab a child because they see the dead are coming out of the corn and I make them make pulls to do this. And while they're doing this, you know, you can see their eyes light up. They realize that, you know, something's on the line while they're playing Jenga. They feel like exactly what you want people to feel in a role-playing game in general, in a horror role-playing game in particular, you, know, you, you just you get them excited about this, and, and they, they're like, they want to know more. They want to know how this happens. And then I put that goddamn book in their hand and tell them how much it costs, and that's it. It's dead. The sale is up. They will not buy that because for $24 or whatever, they can buy six DVDs You know that this guy in the other booth is doing was this big barrier watching that and thinking about that and how to reach this audience because when dread was made i wrote it trying to explain everything i could possibly explain about it which is not necessarily appealing to the non-role player but i was trying to talk to the non-role player but the physical design of the game the size of it uh what it looked like was definitely designed to tell the role player that this was a role-playing game. And in fact, in the beginning, people would often say, oh, this isn't a role-playing game, which is, you know, the, the ridiculous dismissal of all new things. So that was, that was sort of the goal in the beginning and why we ended up with such a large book. And within about a year, I think, of this going to this horror convention, I just woke up one morning and just made Vast and Starlet, went to coffee with the bakers, <laughs> threw it on the table in front of them, and I said, this is what it is from here on out. <laughs> and it, it wasn't that from there on out, but it was, it was, uh, it definitely had a big shifting point in how I design things now. Like I, I look at the games that I write for Worlds Without Master and I look at those as big games. Like I, I think of Swords Without Master, which I think maybe 20 pages long as a giant game <laughs> in my recent uh, design space. He wrote two games that each fit on a business card. Vast and Starlet, and What is a Role-Playing Game? Epidiron, tell me another. So shortly after I did Vast and Starlet, I did What is a Role-Playing Game? This is actually my literal business card. This one I, I give out at conventions when I talk to people or whatever. And it's also free on my website. And I try to answer the question, what is a role-playing game? And for each answer, I give you a rule that you can play with friends there as you do it. And in it, you play bank robbers who also happen to be astronauts it's modern day you're you're u.s astronauts you're about to go up to the iss and you all have like some sort of monetary concern so you want to rob a bank and then lie low in orbit for a while <laughs> uh so nobody finds out who who you are and it's supposed to end in tragedy it's very uh very much aimed at the fiasco genre and it's this little business card thing and the success i got with that was that i handed that to my mom who then turned around and went back to my relatives and 
showed my aunt what role playing was. <laughs> my mom wow. never role played before. Like it used this game to explain it. Now the caveat there is that they did not play it. They just figured out how it's intended to play so you can figure it out. But they, they anyways, to me, that was perhaps the greatest success of any role playing game because <laughs> I'd spent so much of my life doing this crazy little hobby that my parents just couldn't, they knew it meant something, but they couldn't quite, it doesn't quite uh, make sense to them. And then to produce this object that she can then say, Oh, this is what they do. And that was great. That was, that felt like a success. Of the two, Vast and Starlet would be the one that captured roleplayers' imaginations with its promise of a universe of adventure that fits in a wallet. Vast and Starlet directly inspired Doll by Josh Jordan and The Sundered Lands by Vincent Baker, which, alongside Nano World by Marshall Miller and Cheat Your Own Adventure by Shane McLean, all helped jumpstart the popularity of nano games, which in turn has led to the 200-word RPG contest run by David Sherdowan that proves more popular each year. In play, Vast and Starlet consists of only three components – character and ship creation, a mechanic to resolve dangerous or difficult tasks, and a way for the players to create alien races and environments together. Epidai on Tell Me Another. The other side of it is that writing something that small and making a game like really brought into my head the essential core of what I want out of a role-playing game. And there are clearly things I enjoy in role-playing games that go beyond this. So it's not like this is all you need and you have a role-playing game, except this is all you need and then you have a role-playing game. You know, it's the, I had a list of three things that were like, if you did these three things, you would have a game. You would have a situation, a situation that cannot remain the same for any amount of time. Uh, in Vast and Starlet, the situation is your escape prisoners, right? You're going to be pursued. Something's going to change. That situation is stolen straight from Farscape and Blake 7, but also from Siren, which does that situation so well. You wake up with amnesia and you're being chased. Good luck. And then you need a way for people to collaborate. Uh, you just need a good way to make sure that people know how to take turns and know how to provide audience for each other. Uh, and that could be well hidden in the mechanics of the rules, but you got to make sure you have that there. And then you just have to build in a way to make people surprise each other with their fiction output, right? Like Apocalypse World does a really good job of this because it'll, it'll just, you'll roll something and you'll have to choose from a list and let's say pick two of these three and all you want all three of them. And if you don't get all three of them, something horrible is going to happen. And you hand that gift, that wonderful gift of that horrible thing over to somebody else, the, the MC, who then gets to tell you just how horrible it is. And I love those. Like, if you got those three things, you've got a perfectly functioning game. And you can go from there. You don't have to add any more to it. You're more than welcome to add more to it. But make sure you don't erase those things while you're doing it. And I, I think that was kind of a shocking truth that came to me. Like, it wasn't that I was denying that or anything. I just wasn't looking at it that closely until I did Vast and Starlet. It became pretty apparent to me, and I was excited about that. As this was happening, Epidai continued to wrestle with Swords Without Master. Epidai on table play. Sword and Sorcery was a genre that, when I was younger, I just devoured and then stepped away from it for quite a while, I think in a large part due to pretensions in college. There was this moment where I was like, you know, I want to go back and reread some of these ones that I like to see what they were like. And I 
went out and hunted down Fawford and Grey Mouser stories because those were some of my favorites. Those early books, I loved them so much. Like, I didn't realize, like, I remember loving them. And then I read them as an adult, and they still held up. I started working on uh, Swords Without Mastery because of a different game that uh, we had, some friends of mine and I, we made. I realized that that game's framework could work for the sword and sorcery, specifically for Fawford and Grey Mouser kind of sword and sorcery. Mm-hmm. As his research continued, it inspired him not just to create a game, but a whole new anthology easing that would have a significant impact on his and other game design. So I love these stories, Conan and Elric, the Morgane cycle by C.J. Ferry and Tanith Lee stuff. And some of this stuff, like I read in my youth, some of this stuff I only know from the covers that I saw in my library when I was a kid. You know, you pull it out and you just look at the covers and be like, oh, someday I'll be patient enough to read a book. And some of them I, I have found, I've discovered uh, since my rediscovery of sword and sorcery in my later years. And during that time, I started working on Swords Without Mastery because of a different game. I realized that that game's framework could work for the sword and sorcery, specifically for Fawford and Grey Mouser kind of sword and sorcery. Mm-hmm. So I was working on that, and I just got this yearning to create a magazine. It just over and over again, because you're going back to old magazines or collections and to read some of these stories. And I just really was enjoying it and I really wanted to do it, but it didn't make sense. Like there's no financial sense in doing it. It was, um, <laughs> and then one summer I found out about Patreon. It was pretty early in Patreon's existence, like within its first six months, I think. And the model that it had seemed pretty good to me, which was, you know, you put this out and then people pay it, but they pledge to pay it so you know how much money you're going to get. So you can build a budget off of that. And then if the budget is of a certain size, then you know the amount of content you can put in the magazine. And that was great. I would be like, okay, at this size, I could write a story and have it illustrated and have it edited and do that. And at this size, we can add another story. And at this size, we can add a game. And right now, almost from the very beginning, uh, the been able to do two stories, a comic, and a game in almost every single one of the issues. I have to admit, what really made it happen originally was narcotics. That summer, I had also gone through some surgery, mm-hmm. and they had put me on some painkillers afterwards, and I literally launched the magazine, like, from, I decided to do it, to launching the Patreon, all on these painkillers. <laughs> Each issue contained fiction, art, various miscellany, and a game. This set Epidata focuses development on the sword and sorcery genre, first with a game named Wolfspell. Epidata on table play. There's Wolfspell, uh, where you play adventurers who have to turn themselves into wolves in order to accomplish some grim task. And that one is a Apocalypse World hack, where you make these Apocalypse World-like rolls, but instead of rolling two dice and adding them together, you roll a wolf die and a blood die, and you subtract the lower one from the higher one. And the higher one determines whether you can use the... If it's the blood die, you can use the human moves. And if it's the wolf die, you can use the wolf move. And the closer they are together, the suckier those are, because you can't decide if you're human or wolf, and you're not very good at either. And and the end of the game, when you finally complete your task... You have this final role to determine whether you're going to become human again or stay wolf. And that is the best role of the whole game. Every single time that people are like, it's not just whether you become human or stay wolf. There's like, there's results that are things like 
you're a human, but you can no longer live in human society and you have to live out in the wild. Or you're a wolf who constantly dreams of being human. Wolfspell added a new twist to the classic 2d6 formula of the hugely influential Apocalypse world. His next game would be the long in-progress Swords Without Master. Then there was Swords Without Master, which is Sword and Sorcery game that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. That one is, instead of about whether or not you succeed, when you roll, you roll to determine the tone of what you're going to do. Whether it's going to be bright and passionate and warm or angry, or if it's going to be cold and dark and secretive and, you know. And then from there, I had a few games that kind of spilled out from there. I have like a murder mystery one that uses similar mechanics. That's, they're all sword and sorcery games because they're all part of that um, magazine. Swords Without Master took the tonal resolution system of Monkey Dome, but added a huge amount more. Most notably, the concept of three different types of phases instead of scenes. The Rogues phase, the Perilous phase, and the Discovery phase. These phases were the components of the engine that allowed a Swords of that Master story to keep on firing. But, unlike block-pulling Dread, he found this innovation was not so intuitive to players. Epidai talking with us. I had Swords Without Master in mind when I first started the magazine, and Wolfspell hit me pretty hard and fast when that idea came and that was good and then I was like okay I need to do something and one of the ideas that I had is I wanted to take Swords Without Master and break it into its component parts and make little mini games that taught you not necessarily how to play those little parts I guess I, I would look at them as like running drills you know like you would in say basketball or in any old sport where you're not playing the full game you're just doing part of it to get better at that part and I had three games in particular I wanted to do that did that. One of them would appear in issue number seven, and that's Invisible Empire. And that one dealt with uh, the discovery phase. I had an idea for the rogue phase I still am working on. But before, while I was thinking about that, I had this experience where Emily Kerboss and I were on a road trip. We were talking about murder mysteries. We were talking about how to do them without having to come up with the mystery ahead of time. Because that slow feed of hints and clues and whatnot that occur in a lot of those games where one person holds on to the mystery and lets, uh, or tries to get the rest of the players to discover it, ne it never sat that well with me. I always had, had some trouble with it there. Sorcerer's Bloody Sorcerer's was a way to kind of attack that. It was a game that was about a murder mystery, a murder that takes place before the players. I want there to be a clear, true answer to who had committed the crime. And so the idea was that you would have these two dice that in the beginning you would roll just like you would do it in Swords, where they would tell you the tone and how you were supposed to respond to things as you play these various characters who are all in some way suspects. So you would roll these dice, they would tell you how to respond to certain questions or demands from the other players. And partway through, these dice would then get trapped underneath uh, a goblet so that nobody can see what they are. But on them is written in code who is guilty. To help with the perilous phase, Epidai matched his passion for sword and sorcery with his first innovation, the Jenga Tower. And so was born the Dread Geish of Duke Volku. The version of Dread that people can buy today came out in 2005, I think. So it's 12 years old now. At the time when Dread Gage came out, it was probably closer to 10 years old. I've run a lot of Dread games, and what happened with my style is that I would 
by trial and error, find ways to make it easier for me to run Dread Games on the drop of a hat. I had fun every time I did it, but what I would do is I would sit down and I would run this same sort of zombie scenario. Uh, I had just the barest outlines of it in my head. I didn't have any questionnaires for the characters. What we would do is we would have the players go around and ask each other questions. It would take about a half hour to an hour to run, which is compared to like, I guess the standard Dread game and the way we wrote it originally was about four hours. Now, I don't want to make make it sound like Dread Geish is a half hour long game and it doesn't incorporate all of these things, but I, I found myself drifting from where Dread was into another realm and I, it always sat in the back of my head that I would want to maybe produce something that was closer to how I run Dread nowadays. The Dread as it existed was a snapshot of how it was run in 2005, but you know, things have changed. When you're talking about role-playing games, and particularly indie role-playing games, when you say things have changed, often you mean Apocalypse World has been published, right? It gives us an algorithm. It gives us a way to discuss how we want what to happen in the game as game designers. It gives us a, a clearer way to communicate with our players and the GMs that are running it. I want to take some of the tools and technology in Apocalypse World Add to that that at the time I was reading a lot of Clark Ashton Smith, the fiction of the Dread Geish of Duke Voku is kind of around that. I wanted this impossible situation where you magically dominate it by some creature and we're not necessarily watching you heroically find your way through it. We're, we're watching you sort of march to your doom. The rules specifically make life more and more difficult for you if you don't listen and follow these instructions if you don't go along this way. But they they give you a way, it makes it more difficult for you if you don't, but it gives you the chance to defy him to make your own way if you are willing to approach that Jenga tower and do what needs to be done. Because like I said, the inspirational fiction, you would read this and nobody in it, nobody in the story is a good guy. Nobody in the story you want to see I'm thinking specifically Clark Ashton Smith here, and actually to some extent also Jack Vance's characters. They, they, you, you read these stories, and there's something about every character that makes you think, "God, I just never want to meet this person." And then you get to watch everyone get their comeuppance. Listen on to our next episode, where Epidai talks with Rick and Rob in more detail about Swords of That Master, breaking apart the design and understanding how it works.